This week, I asked about 50 adults and children who generally grew up attending church or went to a Christian school, what was the first thing that comes to mind in 10 seconds when I ask about Joshua and the battle of Jericho? The majority of the answers can be grouped into three general categories. The first group of answers, about 20% of those asked, got the facts of the story generally right, with the major facts correct. They mentioned the circling of the city, the walls coming down, and the loud sounds. The second group, about 40% of the adults and children asked, had a vague recollection of the story with incomplete answers. One adult replied, I know Joshua, but I don't remember Jericho. Most remembered only one major element. Most mentioned something about the walls being involved. One child replied, that's where the walls came down. Then there were peas and slushies. Larry the cucumber was Joshua, and the tomato was a narrator. Of course, that child's version of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho came from Veggie Tales, not from the Bible. The third group, about 40% of adults and children asked, simply were flat out wrong and had no ideas. One child said, Joshua is my brother's classmate. An adult thought about the wrestler, Chris Jericho, doing his signature finishing move, The Walls of Jericho. Another adult remembered only the song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and nothing much else. While another adult said, Jericho is the name of a local actor. Only one adult said, Joshua and the battle of Jericho was a spiritual lesson about faith. And this one out of 50 was on the right track. This survey tells me that we really need to re-examine this story once again to see what the Bible really teaches and emphasizes in the battle of Jericho. You see, the story is not really about the walls coming down. This battle at the city of Jericho is so much more than simply a miraculous first battle victory in the promised land for Joshua. I believe it's a blueprint for how we fight spiritual battles. Why do I say this? Let's take a look. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Joshua chapter 6 as we take a look at verses 1 to 27. Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 to 27, as we continue our sermon series titled Courage in the Crucible. Because if you and I know how to fight our spiritual battles, it will give us the courage to face an uncertain world. Look at verse 1 with me of Joshua chapter 6. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. The first verse of this chapter tells us that the city was fortified. It was impenetrable. It was securely locked up and no one came in or out. It would require a high cost of lives if someone wanted to take over the city. Now, the natural solution to take over this most important and strategic city on the plains of Jericho is a military or a human solution. But to take the city would require a lengthy siege. And archaeology indicates that the city of Jericho had enough provision and a water source to hold out for many years. They could try to scale the walls or try to somehow infiltrate the city to open the gates from the inside. But again, archaeology indicates that there was a series of walls, so even if you penetrated the lower outer walls, the city could still be easily defended by the inner walls, and there would be huge loss of life to try to take the city. If you were on Joshua's military leadership council, what sort of advice would you recommend? Would any of you give as a solution, 
Why don't we pray and ask that God would make the walls supernaturally fall down by itself or pray that the people would surrender? If you gave that solution, many of your co-council members would probably laugh at you or perhaps you would be ignored. Maybe they would acknowledge that, yes, it was important to pray, but then to move ahead with a military solution and a plan. In this situation with a fortified city, logically, a military, a human solution is what is called for, not a spiritual solution. But God is going to show them that in this first battle in the promised land, that it was indeed a spiritual battle as all things really are. And what God instructs the people of Israel to do will indicate and show to them this reality, that this was indeed a spiritual battle. You see, my friends, in life, almost every conflict or circumstance that we are in has a spiritual component to it. Therefore, it can be classified as a spiritual battle. I know normally when we think about something being in a spiritual battle, we have in our mind the idea of fighting a demonic oppression. But that's not really the case. We are in a spiritual battle when we struggle to submit to our husbands or to unconditionally love and try to understand our wives in obedience to God's Word. We are in a spiritual battle when we deal with government agencies and try to earn a living rightly in this work environment as we try to be a witness to the world. We are in a spiritual battle when we try to do our best as students with integrity and character, fighting off temptation left and right. We are engaged in a spiritual battle when we try to obey and honor our parents when it is difficult to do so, or when we as parents try to model Christ-likeness to our children. We are in a spiritual battle when we are alone in our rooms deciding what to watch, what to read, what music to listen to, basically what to fill our minds with, knowing that there are certain things we should choose not to watch, read, or listen to. We are in a spiritual battle whenever we interact with our friends daily and wonder if we should share Christ with them or to think about whether what we post on social media glorifies God or not. My friends, you and I are fighting spiritual battles every day. And the question is, do we employ a human or a spiritual solution? Of course, if it is a spiritual battle, then a spiritual solution is what is called for. If that is the case, then what are some of the things we need to remember as we engage in our spiritual daily battles with the help of the Lord? What are the spiritual solutions that we need to live out? Let's take a look. Look at verses 2 to 5 of Joshua chapter 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. These you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. The instructions were clear from the Lord. The armies of Israel were to walk around the city one time every day for six days. 
And on the seventh day, they were to march seven times around the city. On that seventh day, and that seventh time around the city, the seven priests with the seven trumpets made out of ram's horn, called a shofar, will sound a call, and then the people will shout with a great shout. It was then that the city wall, which were fortified, would fall down, and the soldiers of Israel would enter the city and take it over. How strange this must have sounded to the military leaders and the soldiers. You know, if I was there, I might have replied, Lord, you want us to do what? You want us and the soldiers of Israel to walk around the city? Don't you know that if we do this, it would leave us exposed? It would allow the soldiers of Jericho perhaps to throw things at us, to drop things on us, or perhaps to shoot at us. Lord, if they attack us, are we allowed to fight back? You know, there are so many natural questions that are left unanswered in these instructions from the Lord. But as we mentioned last week, the Lord often puts us in places of vulnerabilities or exposed positions to teach us to trust Him fully. And here we are called simply to obey the Lord's instructions. You see, in this first instruction in fighting spiritual battles, we are to number one, obey the Lord's specific instructions. Spiritual battle instruction number one, obey the Lord's specific instructions. Applicationally for us today as Christians, we are to live out the biblical truths of Scripture, which is God's specific instruction for us as His followers. Remember in Ephesians chapter 6, the sword of the Spirit is what? It is the Word of God. I think that one of the hardest things to do when we go through difficult or challenging times is we naturally want to take action. We want to formulate a plan in how to deal with the present problem we're in. The difficulty is that we often naturally want to look for a human solution instead of the spiritual solution, which is often found in the Scriptures. My friends, the Bible is full of truth for how we are to handle certain things. The first being we are to pray, to seek the Lord's intervention, to seek the Lord's wisdom on things. Of course, we must take action at times, but that action must be consistent with biblical truth. I read in a story once where someone said this, when we were children, my sister and I went on a picnic with our parents. The two of us were playing on what we all assumed was a disused railroad track. Suddenly, my mother shouted, jump, get off the track now. You see, she had seen an express train coming down the track. Thankfully, we didn't shout back, don't threaten us. You can't scare us. Why, Mom? Why? If we had done so, I would not be in a position to write this now. We both jumped off the track as the train soon passed by. The command arose out of a mother's love for her children. Similarly, God's command arises out of His love for us. They are given for your own good. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 13. The Bible tells us very clearly, God's command, God's instructions are for our good. That's why when we engage in spiritual battles, we need to heed and to listen and obey God's specific instructions because they are for our good. If this pandemic has taught us anything, it has taught us that some things don't have a quick solution. Some things don't have a quick human solution, and so we have to be patient. So what do we do as we wait? How do we patiently wait? We are to simply continue to live faithfully by living in obedience to the Lord 
in the instructions He has given in the Scripture. You see, some battles are fought over months and years, not hours and days. And in our instant generation today, we want things to be resolved now. And so we can't wait for what the Bible tells us we are to do because it takes too long. We want to find a solution now, and so we employ human methods. But the Bible tells us we are to simply listen to God's instructions when we engage in spiritual battle. Some of these battles take a long time. Some of these battles will be a lifetime of waiting, but yet the Bible tells us that's all we are to do. Many of the battles and challenges that God allows us to undergo really tests our resolve to maintain our obedience to the Lord without rushing ahead of the Lord and using human methods to fight a spiritual battle. We think that the solution to win our daily battles is complex and difficult, especially if it comes from the Scripture. But honestly, my friends, it's not. Just to live in obedience to God's revealed Word is actually quite simple. Yes, the implications may be complex, but living it out is quite simple. It may sound strange. It may not be what we instinctively want to do, but it is always the right solution to obey God's instructions. Look at verses 6 to 10. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city, and let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets." Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. Let's unpack this a bit. Joshua told the people the instruction given to him by the Lord. The soldiers were to march in front of the ark and behind the ark. Seven priests blowing ram's horns walked ahead of the ark as if announcing the ark's presence. Remember, the ark signified the living God in the midst of the people of Israel. And this setup would certainly point attention and draw focus to the ark, which ultimately drew focus and attention to the one true living God of Israel. But notice the instruction to the people in verse 10 as they march. They were to keep quiet. They were not to talk to each other. They were not to taunt or to intimidate the enemy. They were simply to march quietly. The only sound that was to be heard was of the seven priests blowing the ram's horn, drawing attention to the ark. I believe these specific instructions served at least two purposes. For the people of Jericho, the sounding of only the trumpet would draw their attention away from the soldiers but draw their attention specifically to the ark. For the Israelites marching quietly, only hearing the sound of the horns blowing, would bring their mind and attention to the one leading them on this march, which was the Lord. You see, it is important in spiritual battles, number two, to focus on the Lord at all times. To focus on the Lord at all times. Spiritual battle instruction number two, focus on the Lord at all times. 
They were not to talk. They were not to speak to each other or taunt the enemy. They were to keep quiet and focus on the Lord, letting the only sound be the trumpet that drew the attention of everyone to the ark. You know, oftentimes in the Christian life, when you go through our daily battles, we are bombarded with so many things that we lose focus on the Lord. We're so caught up in dealing with a possible solution to our problems. There are so many things that pull at us. Even our conversations with others or even with family members take our focus away from the Lord. With so many things to achieve and so many things to accomplish for the day, we forget what it's all about at the end of the day. We lose the battles we enter because we forget who we are fighting for. When there are lots of noise all around us, our focus is distracted and is pulled away from our Lord and Savior. That's why I believe this admonition to keep quiet was to keep everyone's focus, especially those soldiers of Israel, to draw attention to the Ark of the Covenant. You know, when I observe young people do online school nowadays, I'm amazed by all the things they are doing while they are supposedly paying attention to the instruction given by the teachers. They have multiple screen tabs on. They are chatting with their classmates on second devices. They are playing online games in their breaks. They are reading a book. They are fidgeting with something in their hands. So when I ask my children, how can your generation concentrate and focus when you're doing so many other things? Their answer to me is, this generation is great at multitasking. But listen carefully. Multitasking is a myth, and scientists have data to prove it. Humans, they say, don't do lots of things simultaneously. Instead, we switch our attention from task to task extremely quickly. People can't multitask very well. And when people say they can, they're deluding themselves, says neuroscientist Earl Miller. And he said the brain is very good at deluding itself. Miller is a professor of neuroscience at the famed MIT in Boston. And he says that for the most part, we simply can't focus on more than one thing at a time. What we can do, he says, is shift our focus from one thing to the next with astonishing speed, switching from task to task, You think you're actually paying attention to everything around you at the same time, but you're actually not. That's what Miller writes. You're not paying attention to one or two things simultaneously. You are switching between those two things very rapidly. Miller said there are several reasons the brain has to switch among tasks. One is that similar tasks compete to use the same part of the brain. Think about writing an email and talking on the phone at the same time. Those things are nearly impossible to do at the same time, he writes. You cannot focus on one while doing the other. That's because of what's called interference between the two tasks. They both involve communicating via speech or the written word. And so there's a lot of conflict between the two of them. In the same way God told the soldiers of Israel, no talking. Focus on the Lord because you can't do both. And as the one who created us, he would know us well. Many of our spiritual battles are lost because we have lost focus on the one who leads us to victory. That's why Psalm 46 verse 10 tells us, be still and know that I am God. And in that context of that psalm, the idea is because of the greatness and the awesomeness of the mighty God. 
Those who worship Him must keep still. He deserves our focus and attention. The one who alone deserves it. And so that's why I believe that prohibition from talking is so that the people of Israel, as they marched around the city of Jericho, would pay attention and put their focus on the Lord who was leading them. Archaeologists have estimated the city of Jericho wasn't very large. The circumference of the city at most would be about 2 kilometers or about 1.24 miles. While the Bible doesn't tell us at what speed they walked around the city, let's say they walked at a slow pace. At most, it would have taken about one hour to march around the city. I think that most people can keep quiet for an hour and keep still and focus on the Lord for an hour. But when was the last time you tried doing that for an hour in your life? Most of us can barely do it for 10 minutes. I'm sure on that first day, as the soldiers of Israel were marching, a lot of things would come to mind since they weren't allowed to talk. If I were one of those soldiers, I certainly would have one question on my mind. Would I die today? Would something be thrown at me? Would an arrow fly my way? But as I begin to think, all I'm hearing is the trumpet sound that focuses me back on the ark that was leading me, and that there was a living God that was protecting me, that this was the God who dried up the River Jordan and protected me while I was healing for my circumcision in the plains of Jericho. And then can you imagine on the seventh day, seven hours of not talking, but then it wouldn't have been so hard as they had practiced it for six days prior. Thoughts about dying or losing would no longer occupy my mind if I was a soldier, because for six days I realized that I had been protected as I quietly marched around the city. So my focus has now changed from possible loss of life as I was reminded every time during that march about God who was leading me and protecting me, now from possible loss of life to winning this battle. And that, my friends, is why setting time to focus on the Lord helps us. It centers us. It aligns us to see that God's protection and purpose is being accomplished in our life. It keeps our perspective and faith and hope in the right place, which is upon our Savior. Keeping focus on Jesus is a spiritual discipline that will take time. And you can start it now by starting out with five to ten minutes of your day just quiet, just turning off everything, freeing yourself from all distraction, putting away your phone, not trying to multitask, saying, well, I can do so many things, answer emails while I do my devotions. And just think about the Lord, reading His Word, conversing with the Lord. God's presence will become very real in your life when those times of quiet happen in your life. And it will help you fight and win the daily spiritual battles you face as you focus on the Lord, as you align and center yourself focused on the Lord. Now, when were they allowed to speak? Look at verses 11 to 16. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, but the rear guards came after the ark of the Lord, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. 
But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day, only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Here in verses 11 to 16, we're told that after the seventh time around the city, on the seventh day, the people were commanded to shout. Now, why now? The Bible tells us in verse 16. For the Lord has given you the city. It was a shout of victory. The Bible doesn't record what they actually shouted or whether it was just a mighty cry. But whatever was shouted, it was not a shout of fear or taunting or intimidation. It was a shout of acknowledging that their focus and their faith in the Lord had given them victory. In fact, I'm not making this up. This is what Hebrews chapter 11 verse 30 tells us. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 30 tells us, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down. It was because of their focus on the Lord and their faith in His power to do what He is able to do by following His instruction that gave them this victory. And so they express a shout of victory and of faith for the Lord. You know, I liken this to when people shout, praise the Lord, or to God be the glory, or amen, to express what is in their heart. You see, when people are focused on God, even through spiritual battles, they will be able to shout out praise to the Lord. This is how someone like Job, who was a righteous man who walked with the Lord and yet lost practically everything, was able to say in Job chapter 1, verse 21, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Keep your eyes and focus on the Lord at all times. It is our instruction for when we fight in spiritual battles. Look at verses 17 to 19. Now the city had been doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who were in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you by all means abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Joshua gave some more instruction to the people. He told them that the city and everything in the city was doomed by the Lord to destruction. Only Rahab and the family with her in her house would be spared because of her actions in helping the spies. Also, they were not to take anything from the city of Jericho. Only the precious metals were to be collected and put into the treasury of the Lord. Everything else in the city was noted as accursed, meaning it was vile, it was foul, it was under a curse from God, and it would be destroyed. Now, this instruction seems rather harsh from the Lord, that everything in the city, living and non-living, was to be destroyed. But this is because God is a holy God, and He demanded holiness. Those who inhabited the city, with the exception of Rahab, had rejected the living one true God, and therefore they lived in sin. They lived in an evil, pagan way, following a false god, and therefore they were living not in holiness. And because of this, the living God, in His right, wanted everything destroyed because He is a holy God. This is an important principle we must understand, my friends. 
that as we engage in everyday spiritual battle, we need to remember that we must come to the battle with clean hands. You see, spiritual battle instruction number three, maintain a life of holiness. Maintain a life of holiness. That means if we want God to be by our side, we need to be holy. A holy God will want nothing to do with sin. And therefore, if we are not living in holiness, that means that God's effective work in our lives will be minimized or perhaps not even happen. Now, it doesn't mean we have to live perfect lives. We're all sinners saved by grace. It simply means that we must be aware of our sins and then confess and repent of our sins and our sinful ways and allow the blood of Jesus Christ to wash away our sins and to seek a life that is pleasing to the Lord in holiness. You see, when we engage into a spiritual battle, it means we battle for the Lord. It's not about us getting our way. We're not battling for ourselves. That means we want God's will to be done. We want God's will to prevail. And that will require that those who are fighting on the side of the Lord are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and they are living in holiness. Remember what's written in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 to 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 to 16, Peter writes these words, But as He who is called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Let me repeat that. Such important verses. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. To be holy, my friends, we need to seek to cultivate a growing hatred of sin. For it is this kind of hatred against sin that God also has in mind. We have to hate the things of this world, the sins of this world, so that we can live in holiness. Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or God and wealth or the world. Look at the words used. Hate, despise the things of the world. That's how we are to treat sin. But yet it is so difficult to live in holiness because we don't really hate sin. Craig Crambit once wrote, Do you know why most diets don't work? Because on that diet, you are asked to go without things that you really enjoy and love. Or at least you severely limit your consumption on the things you love and enjoy. For quite a few years, he wrote, I've been on and off a protein diet. And I'm on this diet because it frees you all to eat all the protein you want, but severely restricts all carbohydrates. So, sugars and starches are a no-no. Breads, cookies, cakes, rice, pasta are to be almost completely avoided. Even fruits and other no-fat items are greatly reduced. But on the protein diet, if I want to eat a pound of bacon and a dozen eggs for breakfast, absolutely you can. If I want to eat a whole ham for dinner, no problem. But in a fairly short amount of time, all those things that I have loved begin to lose their appeal. The diet says, I can have as much as I want, but you know what I want, don't you? I want a donut. I want a bowl of cereal. I want a piece of toast. 
I want a bowl of pasta. I personally really love starch as well as proteins, and I want that as well. And as with any diet over time, what really sounds good is what you're not supposed to have. Your diet plan says, use your human willpower to avoid eating things you really enjoy, but maybe the true key to dieting is understanding why certain foods are unhealthy and learning to quote-unquote hate all the foods that are bad for you. My friends, we all like sin, whether we admit it or not. At least we don't hate or despise sin as we should, and that's why we fall into it. Yes, we know we should live in righteousness, and we love living in righteousness, but we have to admit we also like the sinful pleasures of life. And unless we hate those sinful things, then we will have a very difficult time living in holiness. Let me ask you a strange question. If I were to ask you today to make a solemn commitment to not knowingly eat any insects for an entire year, how many of you would sincerely raise your hands and say, okay, pastor, I will eat no insects? I think many of us would raise our hands, perhaps all of us. I will eat no insects this coming year. No more flies, no more spiders. I'm laying off the ants, not even more cockroach. I'm sure all of you would raise your hands vigorously. Why, with such confidence and enthusiasm, would you be willing to make this commitment not to eat insects this year? Because you don't want to eat insects. You don't like them. The thought of eating them makes you feel ill. So here's the question. Why is it so hard to follow through on our spiritual convictions and commitments to stop our particular behavior? Because we don't hate sin. In fact, we like sin. We enjoy sin. We crave sinful pleasures. And so we must get to that point in our life, my friends, where we hate and despise the sinful things of this world so that we can live in holiness. Because as we engage into spiritual battle every day, we lose when we do not have clean hands, when we do not live in holiness. Victory is ours with the help of our Lord when we live in holiness. And God has enabled that through His Son, Jesus Christ, and with the enablement of the Holy Spirit. That's why God told Joshua to tell the people, do not take anything with you from the city of Jericho. You are to burn everything. Look at verse 20 with me. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. When the trumpets blared and the people shouted, the Bible tells us the city walls fell down flat. Without having to scale the walls or having to try to break it down, the Lord did a miraculous work to make the walls come down. You know, people have often doubted if this really happened historically. But it should be no surprise to us that archaeology corroborates this account. I've been to Tel Jericho many times, and the archaeological digs there are scientific and they are precise. In his research article on the walls of Jericho, Dr. Bryant Wood writes this, An in-depth analysis of the archaeological evidence in Tel Jericho reveals 
that the destruction of Jericho took place around 1400 B.C., the end of the late Bronze One period, exactly when the Bible says the conquest occurred. Is there evidence for such an event at Jericho where the walls fell beneath itself, is what the Bible says. It turns out that there are ample evidence that the mud brick city wall collapsed and was deposited at the base of the stone retaining wall at the time the city met its end. Famed British archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon found a heap of bricks from the fallen city walls. An Italian team excavating at the southern end of the mound in 1997 found exactly the same thing, evidence of a wall that fell beneath itself. After the city walls fell, how did the Israelites jump over the four to five meter high retaining wall at the base of the tell? Excavation has shown that the bricks from the collapsed wall formed the ramp against the retaining wall so that the Israelites could merely climb up the top. The Bible is very precise in its description of how the Israelites entered the city. Look what the Bible says in verse 20. The people went up into the city. Every man went straight up, straight up and over, because basically there was a ramp all around the city. The Israelites had to go up, and that's what archaeology has revealed. They had to go up from ground level at the base of the tail to the top of the ramparts in order to enter the city. Look at verse 21 to 23. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has, as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. How can it be that when the city walls of Jericho fell, that only the house of Rahab on the city wall remained standing? Well, of course, it was a supernatural work of God. And again, archaeology shows this to be true. At the north end of Tel Jericho, archaeologists made an astounding discovery that seems to relate to Rahab. A German excavation team in 1907 to 1909 found that on the north, a small stretch of the lower city wall did not fall like everywhere else. A portion of that mud brick wall was still standing to a height of over two meters, which is eight feet. What is more, that there were houses built against the wall. It is quite possible that this was where Rahab's house was. Look at verse 24. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. The Israelites burned the city and everything in it, the Bible tells us in verse 24. Once again, the discoveries of archaeology have verified the truth of this record. A portion of the city destroyed by the Israelites was excavated on the east side of the tell. Whenever the archaeologists reached this level, they found a layer of burnt ash and debris about one meter, about three feet thick. More interesting is that archaeologists Gastong and Kenyon found many storage jars full of grains that had been caught in this fiery destruction. 
This is a unique find in the annals of archaeology. Grain was valuable, not only as a source of food, but also as a commodity which could be bartered. Under normal circumstances, valuable things such as grain would have been plundered by the conquerors. Why was the grain left at Jericho? Well, the Bible provides the answer. Joshua commanded the Israelites that the city and all that was in it was to be burned. That's what the Bible says, and that is what archaeology proves. Look at verses 25 to 27. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gate. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. Everything in the city of Jericho, from the people to the livestock, the food items was destroyed with the exception of the precious metals taken to the temple treasury and the saving of Rahab's family. For sure, the children of Israel would have asked why Rahab and her family were saved, and it would have been told to them that it was her faith that saved her and her family, her faith in the living God Yahweh, which led her action to save the two spies of Israel, her faith to stay in the city and to specifically remain in her house when the people attacked. And that is why she was spared by God. And Joshua and his men obeyed God and spared Rahab and her family. It was because of her faith. You know, it's interesting to note that not every member of Rahab's family listened to Rahab. Not every member of her family had faith. Because if you read Joshua chapter 2, verse 13, which we preached a few weeks ago, Rahab asked that her father mother brothers and sisters were spared. But notice Joshua chapter 6, verse 23. The people saved are her father, mother, and brothers. There is no mention of her sisters, presuming that the sisters of Rahab did not have faith and stay put in the safety of Rahab's house, but made the decision to leave the protection of that house and were presumably killed by the soldiers of Israel. This is a vivid picture that when we fight our spiritual battles, number four, we keep eternity in mind when we make decisions. Keep eternity in mind when making decisions. You see, what we do here on earth reverberates throughout eternity. The actions you take, the choices and decisions you make will have eternal repercussions, all of them. So keep eternity in mind. Remember what Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, for Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your mind on things above, the Bible tells us. Rahab and those in her house made the decision to trust God, and they lived. The pagan people of Jericho chose not to trust in the living God after they heard about his parting of the Red Sea, the defeat of the two great Amorite kings of the east, and even witnessing the drying up of the Jordan River. Yet they still did not believe, and they perished. Joshua did as he was commanded, 
and verse 27 tells us that he became famous. Famous for doing what? Nothing, really. There was no great military strategy employed to defeat the people of the city of Jericho. Joshua simply followed the specific instruction of the Lord, and the Lord fought on his behalf and made him famous. You see, my friends, the Lord fights on our behalf, and if he does so, then victory is assured. That should encourage us to think beyond our own desires and wants, to think about the future eternal implications of our decisions and actions. That momentary illicit pleasure is not worth a ruined reputation and legacy, a loss of family, a ruined ministry. That momentary success achieved through illegal ways is not worth shaming the name of Jesus Christ and losing your testimony to the world which Christ followers are to be. That momentary achievement in this lifetime, working so hard to gain the world, but not acknowledging that you can't save yourself is not worth spending eternity in hell. I like how Mark chapter 8, verse 36 puts it very clearly. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Have you decided today whether you will put your trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, someone who died in your place because you and your good works cannot save you? If you have not made that decision yet, I hope you will soon. Because if you don't, you may enjoy the temporary success as you battle in this life, but you will lose the war at the end because you will spend eternity in hell. That's what the Bible says. My friends, keep eternity in mind when you make decisions as you engage the spiritual battles of your life every day. What you and I do and say and act today will reverberate throughout eternity. The battle for Jericho was the first battle in this new promised land for the people of Israel. And I believe it was done specifically in this way to show the people of Israel and us as readers today that there is a blueprint for what we are to do when we fight our daily spiritual battles. Number one, to obey the Lord's specific instructions. Number two, to focus on the Lord at all times. Number three, to maintain a life of holiness. Number four, to keep eternity in mind when you make decisions. Remember these things, and you and I can have the confidence to enter the battlefield and find victory in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. In a story many of us know well, how refreshing it is even for me to see the spiritual angle of this amazing story. You wanted to teach Joshua and the people of Israel a great important lesson as you want to teach us. And that is that as we enter the spiritual battles of our life, you need to be the one that takes the lead. Help us, Lord, to be obedient in all that we do for you. Help us to keep focus upon you at all times, not allowing the distractions of this world to take us from keeping focus on you center and align our lives in your presence. Lord, help us to maintain clean hands and live a life of holiness by hating sin as you hate sin. And Father, help us to always keep eternity in mind every day 
that the decisions we make today will always have eternal ramifications as we build up eternal rewards. Father, this life is very difficult to live out. We need your help every day. Would you help us, Lord, in these spiritual battles and grant us the victory that we have in you. Allow the Holy Spirit to enable all those who fight these battles in their life every day. May God bless our study of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.